This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet and brought to you by the Birches of Concord. New Hampshire's first assisted living facility designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. We are streaming live at nhtalkradio.com, archived there also for your binge listening pleasure. And I am joined by Chris Ryan. Chris, who's getting ready to travel south, south to the land of the green, south to the land of the garden, south to the land of the mighty Boston Celtics, where he will interview the remarkable players set to make Celtics history once again, because Chris Ryan cares almost as much about sports as he does about politics. He is a man of many talents, as are we here at WKXL, where we welcome our first guest of the segment, Vladimir Putin. Well, very glad to be with you, Paul, on WKXL, because we are celebrating today the one-year anniversary of your collusion, no collusion, collusion, no collusion, witch hunt, no witch hunt, investigation, called investigation. My name is pronounced, uh, you should know, by as Vladimir. It's Vladimir, not Vladimir. Vladimir is pronounced by you, Americanskis, but it's Vladimir in Russian. And I have been watching very closely because my friend Donald Trumpeltinsky has been saying no witch hunt, no collusion, witch hunt, collusion. He can't keep straight, but I tell you, there is no collusion. Robert Mueller is not patriot. He's just trying to take the government down. This is a terrible thing for you. Not so bad for us, however, because there is no evidence of nothing. It is a witch hunt. But, but, but Mr. President Putin, the Senate investigation... Uh, just um, had released findings, basically, saying that there was collusion between the Russian government, that the Russian government interfered with the American election. There are all those meetings between Russians and members of the Trump team. Oh, there's nothing. These low-level people who know nothing. I know nothing. I deny, deny, deny. I deny any interference in anybody's election except, of course, my own, where I make sure that I win every time. Because, you know, as former KGB, I am very, very experienced in interfering with elections. I know how to do this for from ground zero to uh, to to the top of the twin tower, I'm, I'm you know I, I can do everything uh, as president. Well, here we are back at WKXL. Thank you, President Putin. You're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here anytime with you, Paul Hodes, because you know I know your grandfather was from Ukraine. He is really we consider him Russian because we annexed Ukraine <laughs> by force. We go into Crimea with the tanks and the snipers, and now the Ukraine it might as well be Russia. We are back to the Soviet Union. So I celebrate your grandfather, yeah. Sam, who came from Ukraine 1912. He never should have left by now. Who knows? 
Charles, you'd be in jail in Siberia. Hey, I'm like one-tenth uh, Ukrainian. Well, Chris Ryan, you are also celebrated today, but maybe it was you who colluded with the Trump campaign on behalf of Russia and said it was Russia because not. So, Robert Mueller, stop your crazy business. Well, thank you, President Putin. I, I think we've heard quite enough from you. But, Chris Ryan, what about the recent revelation, the brand-new revelation that Donald Trump actually reimbursed Michael Cohen to help pay off Stormy Daniels. And Stormy Daniels' lawyer, Avenetti, who's a pretty smart guy, says there are more revelations coming. Does it matter? You know, the only way it really does matter is uh, the matter has now been referred to ethics. It's the first time apparently in history that a sitting president has been referred on an ethics matter of this kind for failing to disclose the cover-up payment to his lawyer for Stormy Daniels. So Avenetti is kind of brilliant. He keeps on churning this thing, which happened years and years and years ago, which is why the evangelical movement can say, oh, it was a long time ago, and Donald has now found the Lord, and he's seen the light, and we support him no matter what he does. But the cover-up is what gets people. The cover-up. I, I don't. To be quite honest, I really don't think that um, most Americans care at all about the uh, the Stormy Daniels uh, situation. And you know, in my view, um, Stormy does. Stormy cares, uh, but I really think that in a lot of ways, this behavior from Donald Trump is expected by voters. It's expected not just of Donald Trump, but I think of of presidents and presidential candidates and politicians. And you know, that has uh, unfortunately the bar has been been lowered to the point where. Um, you know, individuals may thirst for something more. They may thirst for a higher moral authority as President of the United States, but they've come to uh, kind of expect this. So, you know, we've seen Donald Trump's approval numbers actually go up during this time period because as this story gets talked about and covered, um, you know, there's a focus away from some of the competence and aptitude issues that um, really hurt Donald Trump's numbers, in my view, coming out of the, the White House or other types of stories. So this story in some ways, um, in terms of the the front window side of things, the PR side of things, doesn't really hurt Donald Trump. Now, the, stor- the story behind this, the backstory, if you will, in regards to Michael Cohen, um, the finances aspect of things, where did the money come from? I mean, that is the... Uh, the the legality issue is one that could perhaps become problematic for Donald Trump. I don't think you know, the Congress or the Senate has proved throughout the course of this to be uh, beyond inept in terms of uh, of being able to do anything um, substantive. Uh, you know, this is it's pretty much all Mueller or nothing. Um, you know, the New York uh, prosecutors or nothing. Um, but I think that it also has shown a um, a light on some of Michael Cohen's uh, practices, what he was doing on behalf of of Donald Trump, um, and you know it feeds the the narrative and the real narrative that despite the fact that Donald Trump ran as being an individual who was going to drain the swamp, you have his personal attorney, you know, going to countries um, and you know, trying to um, to exact uh, money from them, or in some cases doing so in order to get influence over the president, going to companies like AT&T um, and doing the same thing. And, and, wait a, and wait a second. Let's be fair that that at least from this president – 
we have remarkable consistency because just the other day, in terms of money and countries and draining swamps, uh, the president sought China's approval to approve an amusement or entertainment park in Indonesia, in exchange for which he showered some fabulous benefit on 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 China. I mean, it's as clear a day pay-for-play kind of diplomacy that's, that, that simply has no real precedent in its boldness and its lack of, lack of appropriateness. It's, I mean, there's no there's, – I, I, I'm, being, I'm being overly diplomatic about here, no, right. but it's corruption at the highest level. It's corruption between Xi Jinping and President Donald Trump, which is like billions and billions and billions of – of, of taxpayer money going in a pay-for-play scandal. So well, at least he's consistent. Donald Trump spent the, the campaign um, going after Hillary Clinton and um, their and the practices of the uh, the Clinton Foundation um, where you know there was a odor of potential corruption that existed. And it's almost like he he and his associates looked at that and said, wow, I mean this Look at what we could do here, and just. But the the Clintons, the Clintons always, if there was something you know improper that was taking place, they they always kind of um, you know kind of tried to dot the i's and cross the t's and make sure that it was not something that was blatant and out in the open where you could say clearly you know this is um, this is corruption. There's no argument around it. Where Trump and his folks. They just don't care. They like really they're just gonna don't. like. They I mean, that's they care. are they are completely authentic about the fact that they are going we to. We couldn't do this. care right. less. Ethics, ethics is something that's observed um, more in the breach than in the observance. It's just a word, and after all, I can tweet. You know, I mean, as long as I'm tweeting, the concept of ethics doesn't really matter. I mean, I can tweet anything, and it just doesn't. It doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter to the president of the United States, why should it matter to anybody else? What's really surprising is how completely the members of Congress have bought in to this, to the scam and the scandal. And, you know, wonder whether it's going to come back to hurt anybody in 2018. I mean, has the American public just given up on, on, on calling Donald Trump to the carpet? Does the American public care whether I mean, let's forget the sexual uh, peccadillos. Forget about that, okay? And I agree with you that you can forget about it. However, the cover-up, the financial dealings, um, and the lack of transparency and honesty—is it still something that anybody cares there is about? A, no, absolutely not. There is an expectation. That's a little bit too. That uh, was too much pretty. Of a hot take. That was pretty powerful, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen <laughs> of the listening public, there, if you are a voter, <laughs> I want you to know that Donald, that Chris Ryan yeah. doesn't think much of you, but you are thinking about this, people. You've got to be thinking about this. So, I think that um, again, the life is all about expectations, and for the American voter. Um, there was an expectation that whether you like Donald Trump or you don't like him, I that, don't like him. That uh, that seventy percent of the individuals don't think that he is truthful. So the fact that he is being untruthful about something is not necessarily something that's going to move the dial. Uh, for seventy percent of voters, they thought that he was a person who was probably a type of person who'd have an affair with a porn star. So the, it's, that's not moving the dial either. 
the the only thing that moves the dial in my view again is in regards to um, to competence I think a lot of voters thought that Donald Trump would shake things up he would change them and that um, you know the economy the country might be better for it and that he was a successful business person and he would use those practices to potentially change things and you could argue about the validity of that but that's what they thought well so the only thing that moves the dial in my view are things outside of what people's expectations were well, you know, and I guess you'd say that he has shaken things up. He has gone backwards regressively on almost every single thing that the previous administration did. They cut a deal, I get rid of the deal. They want to uh, clean up our air and our water, I want to make sure it's dirty. Uh, They want uh, our kids to get um, an education in public schools, I want to make sure that we get rid of public schools. I mean, so he has successfully shaken things up, if you look at it that way. If we have an era of tolerance and acceptance of diversity, I want to make sure that white people rule. I mean, so in that in that sense, he has met everybody's but expectations. Even, I mean, those are obviously all, you know, kind of off the oh, yeah, charts, that, kind of grandiose. I would say he's chipped. Jobs. It is, but he. Yeah. But I would say he's he has chipped away at those things. I would say that um, chipped, you know, I, a, chipped away. Have you? Not, you're making it seem like every single person in America is drinking dirty water, and that we're um, that you know white supremacy is the rule of the. The land. It's not. I mean, he has he has chipped away at the uh, a, a culture of acceptance, uh, diversity, immigrants, and and all of that. He's chipped away at protections for the EPA. Um, he's chipped away um, at the public school system. I beg, um, but there's I, that we has not changed. He has not altered I beg to this point to differ in its entirety. You. I I appreciate your opinion minimizing the damage that Donald Trump has done to the United States of America, but I beg to differ because while you may not have quite yet seen the effects, if his policies and his people are allowed to stay in place and keep doing what they're doing, the consequences for this country are disastrous. And I'm hoping voters are taking a look at 2018 and putting a stop to this guy by changing Congress around the country and making sure that at the state level, we get rid of those who adhere to his policies. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back with a spirited discussion with John Rao about public financing of elections. How are we going to clean up this mess? Well, public financing, something that has been debated since the beginning of the republic, may be the answer. Don't go away. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet and brought to you by the Birches of Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life with the Birches. Call 224 
888-528-9111. And we are, of course, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com and archived there so you can binge listen to your heart's content at any time of the day or night. Don't hesitate to get up in the middle of the night and binge listen to Off the Record and join all those other crazies who like to listen to segment after segment. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome a special guest to Off the Record, John Rao. Glad to have you here. Hey, Paul. Wonderful to be here with you, my friend. John and I go way back. We conspired years hey, ago. we're not that old. That's right. We, well, we conspired years ago <laughs> to uh, help get the Capitol Center off the ground. And you have been in the forefront of New Hampshire's public life for a long time. You were a candidate for the United States Senate. Uh, and you have led the charge for public financing of elections, not just in New Hampshire, but on a national level. Um, it's something clearly that has been a passion for you. And what has, what has motivated you to take on the fight for public financing of elections? Well, Paul, uh, when I ran against uh, Judd Gregg in 1992 for the United States Senate, uh, I got, uh, in a way, inside the political system. And what I could see was that we have a barrier, and it's a money barrier, that the pool of people who can be considered for high office for the Congress, if you will, and to some extent the presidency, either you have a famous name or you have wealth or you have the contacts to raise the money that's needed. And uh, it makes no sense. As this nation searches in the years ahead for the leaders that we need, that money barrier has to be eliminated. So we can search wherever we wish for the leaders we need, and that means replacing the private funding system with a public funding system. Now, when I say replace, we can't mandate legislatively that every candidate uh, must take the public funding, use the public funding system. It must be voluntary. But in the three states where we have it, Maine, Connecticut, uh, and Arizona, oh, 75, 78 percent of the candidates go in for public money. And as you know, Paul, as a candidate for Congress who happened to win, uh, I can teach people to lose, but you can teach them to win. As you know, you don't need the most money, but you'd sure need enough. And public funding legislation needs to provide uh, the opportunity for a quality candidate to do that. So. Well, you know, the history of campaign financing in this country is a long and sordid tale. In in preparation for your visit, I visited the trusty Internet and took a look at uh, a timeline of some of the efforts in the past about campaign funding. And what I found was, was really interesting. I mean, because it's kind of a, a, a tale of corruption, money, and politics that is peculiarly American. And uh, for those of us who grew up on the I cannot tell a lie, my name is George Washington, and I did chop down the cherry tree, which he never did. And he probably did tell lies. I mean, not to the extent, of course, that our current carrot top cantaloupe does, but, but still I'm sure he did. Um, one of the first reported instances of corruption in campaigning belongs to George Washington, who was 
uh, running for a seat in the Virginia House of Burgesses, and he was said to have purchased and distributed during the campaign more than a quart of rum, beer, and hard cider <laughs> per voter. There were 391 voters in the district, so that's a that's a lot of rum, beer, and cider. He was buying votes without with liquor. So I thought that was that was um, you know in in view of the billions and billions of dollars now in dark money being spent on campaigns, I thought that buying votes with, with, with liquor um, was pretty good. Um, uh, in in, in um, the New York mayor's race in 1838, as much as $22 was being paid for an uncommitted vote. Uh, in 1864, uh, President Lincoln warned of a coming crisis about the money power being vested in the hands of a few uh, until all wealth is concentrated and uh, the republic is destroyed. And it goes on from there. There's the famous Tammany Hall era. In uh, the late 1800s, as Mark Twain said, uh, we can say and say with pride that we have legislators that bring higher prices than any in the world. I mean, so, so I mean, this— uh, I'm laughing, but it's not laughable. It's not laughable. But what, what I found really interesting was that in 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt argued for a ban on all political campaign contributions by corporations and proposed a public financing system yes, he did. Teddy for Roosevelt federal was, candidates. You're dead right, Paul. Yeah. The first was Teddy Roosevelt, who happened to be a, a Republican. And um, let me point out, Paul, that yes, as I said a few moments ago, this money barrier to picking our best to serve in the Congress North must be eliminated. There's another fundamental reason, and you're leading into that with the history that you've just given us for public funding, and that is it's imperative in a democracy that the voices of every citizen, the perspectives of every citizen, are heard and considered, not just those like George Soros and the Koch brothers who have wealth and can use that wealth for contributions now through the super PACs, thanks to Citizens United, can use that wealth to influence policy. This is a democracy. We're all equal. And that is not happening. And that can be corrected to a great extent with public funding elections. And you refer to Citizens United. That, of course, uh, for, for those who may not know, was a Supreme Court decision. Um, which opened the floodgates, essentially, to non-transparent dark money, money that would never be accounted for, allowing unfettered corporate support of political candidates in all kinds of ways. And it really has changed politics. When I, I ran for the United States Senate in 2010, and that was really the first time that the major effects of Citizens United uh, were at play, um, I was a pretty good fundraiser in my day. Um, and for my United States Senate campaign in 2010, I think we raised um, something more than five and a half million dollars, which seems like a lot of money, except I was outspent uh, by Kelly Ayotte and those on her behalf uh, by about six to one. My understanding is that that the total spending against me was about thirty-five uh, million, thirty thirty-five million dollars. That, of course, pales in comparison to the last United States Senate race in New Hampshire, 
um, in which Maggie Hassan narrowly defeated Kelly Ayotte, very narrowly, and $100 million was spent by the parties and by all of those interested. So if we think about the price of a United States Senate seat as $100 million, much of it unaccounted for, much of it from players um, who, who we'll never know about. You know, I mean, how different is it from the Watergate days when Richard Nixon's campaigns were financed by briefcases full of cash and millions of dollars of cash that came from sources nobody ever knew about? Um, it is a corrupting influence. And by the way, I have yet to meet a voter in New Hampshire who appreciates being bombarded by advertising uh, over and over again from groups with crazy names. You know, you can call it the Americans for Fair Elections and spend $100 million of corporate money on a campaign. Who's behind this? Why are they behind this? What interests do they have? Why are they trashing candidates? And there's got to be a better way. And I haven't even touched on my experience as a congressman and as a candidate running for office. There's got to be a better way. Well, I think there is. First, an observation, Paul, on Citizens United. It's a decision that uh, I share with you. I think was not well-reasoned. And corporations are not people. But it is today uh, the law of the land. So I'm frequently asked the question, um, as chair of Open Democracy, a campaign reform organization here in New Hampshire, um, can public funding work with Citizens United's remaining on the books? And yes, I'd like to see it overturned. And the answer is yes. Why? Well, you don't need the most money to win. I understand your six-to-one problem. I clearly resonate to that. But you don't need the most money to win. I think with Citizens United and the super PAC money, it means that we who structure uh, public funding legislation for New Hampshire and federally need to raise the amounts that a candidate, a good candidate who works hard, can get under public funding. They don't have to have the most. So in your particular case, you say you raised around $5 million? Something or, like that. Right. My guess is with the count of, amount of money being spent against you, you may have needed 8 to $10 million, but you didn't need to equal the $30 million. You needed enough to get your message out and to answer those attacks. So recognizing the probability in the short term of Citizens United not being overturned, um, we are extremely comfortable, those of us who are backing the initiative to publicly fund New Hampshire in federal elections, really comfortable that the legislation we'll be proposing this fall will work even with Citizens United. It'll allow a candidate who opts into the public funding system to have enough resources to answer those attacks, get their message out. And let me say this. One reason that money is vital relative to the super PAC money is a candidate should have the resources to put his or her own perspectives out, not even have super PACs who are with that candidate speaking for that candidate. You can't stop it. It's independent. And by the way, lastly, in terms of City United, let's assume it goes away, which it will not in the short term. You can still spend your whole net worth under the laws, under our Constitution, the way we see the First Amendment. You and Pago can spend your whole net worth 
any way you wish for or against a candidate as long as you don't coordinate with that candidate. So we're not going to stop big money, I don't believe, even if we get rid of it, which we're not going to do in the short term. So public financing isn't necessarily, at, at least in the modern day, the efforts of your organization, Open Democracy, and others who are working on this problem. Right. Uh, you're taking the playing field as you now find it. Correct. With Citizens United there and the p possibility for big money, but saying that because uh, you trust candidates to be smart, because the voters are pretty well educated about uh, looking through some of the some of the some of the crazy stuff that they may see on the air that it's important for a candidate to be able to have enough money to get their message out and target uh, but you're not necessarily trying to level the entire playing field of a campaign no, there's no need to do that uh, an example would be the last presidential election you know, if you uh, could buy an election, uh, if the top money raiser wins, Hillary's president of the United States. Hillary outspent Trump two to one. Yeah, but Trump had an awful lot of he, he had a he had help from the, the the trolls from my friend Vladimir Putin sent his trolls <laughs> to help the Donald Trump Putinsky in many ways that nobody knew about at the time. But now we are finding out no collusion, of course, but we knew about the trolls. You know, I wonder, and, I wonder what other accents we're going to get from this guy soon. Yes, you're right. And are there other factors that? determine who wins or loses besides money? Absolutely. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with John Rao of Open Democracy here in New Hampshire about public campaign financing, and we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224 9111. We'll be back with more with John Rao on Off the Record after this. Don't go away. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, and brought to you by the Birches at Concord. New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. I'm speaking with John Rao of Open Democracy about campaign finance reform and the prospects for public financing of our elections. So, John, we were... Uh, uh, we covered a lot of subjects, including Citizens United in, in the last segment. I'm curious as to whether or not uh, campaign finance reform efforts like yours with Open Democracy and with other organizations that you've worked with in the past are, are partisan affairs or are they bipartisan? What's the, and what's the history? I mean, what's the history here in New Hampshire? Has anybody from New Hampshire ever advanced the idea that public financing was a good idea? Oh, it has been advanced. Uh, there was a bill introduced in uh, uh, this year that uh, didn't make it, uh, but uh, the vote was uh, uh, not close, uh, but indicated in the future it was possible to pass it and we'll be introducing in 2019. 
Democrats tend to be more forward. Republicans have concerns. Why? And Republicans uh, have concerns. I think part of it is because there's a sense that they can raise more money, and maybe that's true than the Democrats. But let me say, Paul, the initiative uh, that I've been part of uh, was has been always bipartisan. And I speak of the former uh, fantastic Senator Warren Rudman. Warren Rudman voted against public funding in the Senate in the early 1990s. But when I founded an organization called Americans for Campaign Reform, with Senators Bradley and Kerry, Democrats, and Al Simpson of Wyoming, Republican, went to see Warren with a few of our board members. And Warren listened intently, which was his way, studied it and called me and said, let's do it. And from that point on until Warren passed away, he worked every day doing exactly what we asked him to do and what he thought of to help pass public funding. So it, it must be bipartisan. And yes, the frank truth is uh, the bigger challenge is, is with the Republicans to show them that they will have sufficient resources if they work hard under the system uh, to put on competitive campaigns. Well, of course, one of the great Republicans in American history, um, uh, Senator McCain, uh, was the author of a bill, along with uh, then-Senator Feingold, a Democrat, right. to close soft money on TV expenditures. Uh, it failed the first time it, it was proposed, but, but later passed. Um, these days it doesn't have uh, much, if any, effect, given, given Citizens United. But clearly the concern has been uh, bipartisan. When I went to Congress... Um, and you and I have discussed this, I thought it was an important issue. Uh, and I think it's the first and primary issue about reform of our politics, frankly, um, that people ought to be concerned about. And I raised my voice along with many others in Congress about the issue, talking, you know, I, th I just, I think it's vital. Um, you can You can talk about all kinds of reforms, but until you reform this connection between power and money and money and power and the endless amounts of time and effort that uh, candidates have to put into raising money until you tr deal with that in some constructive way, it's going to be really hard to um, uh, deal with partisanship in our politics, gridlock in our politics, um, and the influence of money in politics cannot be overstated. Um, you and I have talked about this a little bit. I mean, I can tell you very clearly from my experience as a congressman, when I Getting to Congress was all about raising the money. I mean, my, the strength of my campaign was never judged on the strength of uh, my uh, character or my ideas. It was judged on the strength of my fundraising. I mean, I remember going to talk to Rahm Emanuel, who was then head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in Washington, D.C., when I was thinking of running. And I told him I was thinking of running and talked a little bit about my background. He gave me about five or ten minutes. And then he said, great, come back when you've raised a million dollars and we'll talk. So it was about money then. And all that anybody seemed to care about when I was a candidate was What's your financial report? How are you doing on fundraising? And so I spent hour after hour after hour calling people who used to be my friends, asking them for money. It wasn't for me. It was for the campaign. It wasn't for me personally. It was so I could get to Congress and do the kinds of things on behalf of the people of New Hampshire and the country that they wanted done. When I got to Congress, 
Um, most of, I mean, I literally most of my time was spent fundraising, and this is true for almost every member of Congress. Now, maybe I was a little naive, and I didn't have a very good base. I didn't have a very good organization. I didn't have a history of political fundraising to rely on. But I spent hour after countless hour in a beige, windowless cubicle uh, calling people. And then uh, I will tell you that I had experiences where People who contributed money to my campaign thought that they owned me on certain issues. And I could, you know, I won't I won't go into specific examples now, but it was clear that people who gave money thought they had the right to uh, influence the way I voted and what I did. And that's just wrong. That's not, that cuts out the voice of everybody I represented because my I was not, what I always said to people was I represented everybody. I represent Democrats, independents, Republicans, and everybody else. And um, I'm not going to I'm not going to change my vote depending on who gave me money. And I, I was able to stick to that. But the, the corrosive influence of money was so clear to me that, in, as you and I have talked, I've likened it to an addiction. It's like an opioid addiction, the addiction of politicians to money. And the addiction of the money and the power to politicians is clearly uh, corrupting our political system. And something needs to happen. Paul, uh, I think you state the case so well. Um, I believe, I think you do also, that what we're talking about here in terms of public funding of elections, specifically Congress and the White House, is the most important long-term, not necessarily short-term, long-term issue America faces. Why? We only elect 536 people to meet our challenges, uphold our values. The Senate, the House, the President of the United States, 536. If they don't meet our challenges, what happens? They don't get met. If they don't uphold our values, and they're not now, they don't get upheld. So I believe everything follows from whom we elect. And that applies here in New Hampshire, too. I believe it's the most important long-term issue America faces. But now you mentioned time, the time that members of Congress spend. I wish Senator Alan Simpson was here because he's a hell of a lot funnier than I am. He really, and what a beautiful human being, a Republican back in public funding, co-chair of the organization, I found it. And Al, if we're sitting here and you brought up time, I'll tell you what he'd say, Paul. He'd say, Paul, and he, I've heard him in our presentation, to Paul, I remember one day uh, I was a, a, a chief sponsor uh, of a bill in the United States Senate to be heard in a committee at 9 the next morning. And it was about 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon. And I said to the chief of staff, bring together the seven other sponsors so we can plan our presentation to the committee in the morning. And he came back in about 20 minutes and he told me where each of them were. You know, one of them's in Detroit raising money, one of them's here, and one of them said, I'll be there uh, at 4, but I have to leave at 5.15 because I have to go downtown because I have to go to this particular lobby's uh, cocktail party. And then, of course, if Simpson were sitting here, he, just, he can tell you which hotels have the best shrimp. I mean, he really can because he's played this game, too. They're spending, and you were one of them, and you just said so, they're spending, tell me if I'm wrong, 30 to 60 percent of their time raising money. 30 percent. Easy. Easy. 30 percent. Can you imagine with only 536 people to meet our challenges? 
30 percent of your time doesn't get you anywhere, John. You got you got you you have bad staffing if you're only doing thirty percent. You got to get that percentage up. We need a lot more fundraising from you and a lot less of you sitting in your your committee. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere sitting in the committee, but you got to raise you got to raise your money. Or I mean, I mean that's what this is about, right? And we're and we're kind of laughing and chuckling a little bit, but let's be serious here for a second. We're talking about America's future. Yeah, I'm not, John, I'm not chuckling about it. When I got into Congress, what I was told when I was picking my committees, I, I wanted to sit on the Government Oversight and Reform Committee because Henry Waxman was going to run it. The Iraq War was on. I was a prosecutor uh, before I was in Congress, and I wanted to ask some pretty tough questions of the people who'd gotten us into that mess. And what I was told was, okay, fine. You're going to you can have your government oversight reform committee, but we want to put you on financial services because that's where your money's going to come from. So at the very highest levels of the leadership of the Democratic Party, what they were already thinking about was how do we keep this guy uh, getting elected? Because that's what we care about. We're going to put him on the financial services committee and he's going to get all that money from banks and financial institutions. Because after all, as Willie Sutton said, that's where the why do I rob banks? That's where the money is. But I mean, as it happened, I kind of surprised people because I don't think I got very much money from the banks and financial services people after they heard my my positions on reform and what needed to be done. They, I just never somehow got that silver spoon because I thought that, um, you know, I mean, I thought things needed to be done to regulate the banks in the financial sector, especially the the, the major banks. I'm, I was always, I'm always been a big, a big fan of our community banks here in New Hampshire and worked hard to, to see that their interests were, were protected. But so, but so, I, you know, it, it kind of worked out, but I had to spend an awful lot of time because here in New Hampshire, by the way, we just don't have a huge base of people who give a lot of money. So when I was in Congress, I had to travel. I went to New York. I went to L.A. I went to Chicago. I went to Detroit. I went to Ann Arbor. I went anywhere I could and had to make the case that people there ought to care about electing me to Congress from New Hampshire because, after all, we were the first in the nation primary state. And it was important to have a Democratic congressman from New Hampshire in place so they ought to give me money, too. And I, I raised a, a bunch of national money. But Let's just talk in the uh, few minutes uh, left about New Hampshire. Um, what's the perception of voters here? Do do they see financing of elections in New Hampshire as a problem? And is it the same kind of problem that we've been talking about with federal elections? Well, it so happens, Paul, and I do chair, as you know, the board of directors of Open Democracy. We recently completed a poll uh, of uh, 600 New Hampshire citizens, equal number, Trump voters, Hillary numbers, et cetera, professionally done poll. And what we found was on the question, do you believe big money is having an inappropriate impact on New Hampshire elections? Answer, 80 percent. Wouldn't have been that high five or six years ago. But with the super PAC money, as you point out, 80 uh, percent believe it's a significant problem. 
We've been talking with John Rao here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes about public financing of elections. We're on WKXL AM and FM. It's Off the Record, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. John, thanks for joining us. We'll have you back. We'll talk about this more. Pleasure to be with you, Folks, don't go away. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. And you can binge listen at nhtalkradio.com. Binge listen to your listening pleasure. Well, what a week it's been. We couldn't keep up with all the news here on WKXL off the record, but Chris Ryan and I had a good time. We welcomed a short visit from Vladimir Putin celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Robert Mueller investigation. Uh, Donald Trump has tweeted 41-plus times that there's no collusion, that it's all a witch hunt. But lots of people have pleaded guilty and gone to jail, and the investigation is still rocking and rolling. And we had an interesting discussion with John Rao from Open Democracy here in New Hampshire about the prospects for public financing of our elections. How do we clean up the election system? Well, public financing may be the answer because the collusion of money and power in our system isn't doing any of us any good. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to our great sponsor at the Birches. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.